who should be leading the local church that's on the corner of Church Street and 2nd Avenue in any given city? The pastor? The deacon board? The elder board? A certain group of select committees? Uh, the congregation? Some form of hierarchy, maybe bishops or cardinals or the pope? Maybe the pastor's wife. If you can imagine who might be leading a church, it's probably been done or is being done. But the real question is, what does the New Testament say about church leadership? Please turn in your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, and I will read verses 11 through 16. Paul writes to Timothy, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct, in love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. We have talked much over the last several years on and off about this idea of consumer Christianity and the difference between consumer Christianity and biblical Christianity. Of course, consumer Christianity just being that kind of Christianity which says, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to find a church, and I'm going to get what I can get out of it. I'm going to go there for how it benefits me. And, and generally, the idea is um, people are looking for things that meet their own specific family's needs as far as certain children's ministries, teen ministries, the music that they like, um, whatever it may be, the pastor's personality. Um, and not to say that you know, none of those things are ever important, but that's, that's their whole approach to their Christianity. How does this benefit me? They treat their church like they do a grocery store. And they're, they're free to move on to another church just like they move on to another grocery store. If that grocery store's prices went up or whatever, they didn't carry the things they wanted. And of course, that's, that's far from biblical Christianity. But a, a common, another common aspect of consumer Christianity is the desire and the expectation that one or more paid professionals will do the vast majority of the spiritual work of the church. Sure, there are those who will help out by doing some of the more tedious tasks around the church, uh, or even perhaps teaching a Sunday school class and such. But for the most part, these kinds of people in consumer Christianity are often looking for a church where they can be served. And this is completely contrary to the New Testament and what it tells us about the church. The, the church is not merely a, a place for going to take what one wants, what one is, is, is looking for. Uh, rather, it's a place of service. Of course, Jesus himself said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to serve. And of course, you have the kenosis passage in Philippians 2, which talks about that. He became a servant. And Paul tells us that, the, that Jesus gave the church certain gifts, gifted men, so that they could equip other believers in the church to do the spiritual work of the church. And again, we've looked at this verse many times, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. 
And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And when it comes right down to it, every Christian, every true believing person in a church um, should find a place to serve in that church. They should be serving. Uh, and that's not to say that, that serving in the local church is the only thing that's important. Of course not. There are many things that are important in the church. We, we went through what we believe is important in the church when we spent six months going through a, a, a vision in the vision statement for our church. Things like scriptural worship, genuine Christ-like love for others, uh, the faithful teaching and preaching of the scriptures, and other things as well. But a believer who is simply a, a part of a church in order to get out of it what, what he can gain for himself and his family is not fulfilling the purpose that God has for him in that local church. We are all meant to serve in the local church. And God intends for some of us to serve in a leadership role in the church. This morning as we continue our series on biblical church leadership, we'll focus our attention on one of the things that I mentioned last week, and that is the New Testament teaching of, of leadership by a plurality of elders. And, and I want to just uh, note here that um, some of this, what I'll say this morning and, and um, probably in future messages as well, is, is really uh, I owe to um, the book on biblical eldership by Alexander Strzok. Um, it's an excellent book where he takes the scriptures and, and goes through them re regarding eldership. But the first thing we see, and some of this is re kind of review, so we're not going to spend a lot of time with it, but the New Testament presents a model of shared pastoral leadership, really a council of elders. And, and we saw this last week, the, the pattern of a plurality of elders in a local church is, is seen throughout the New Testament. We, we looked at these verses briefly last week, I, Acts 14, 23. They appointed elders in every church, plural elders, church singular. Um, in the church in Jerusalem, um, they, in Acts 15, 4, they came to Jerusalem. They were welcomed to the church singular, and the apostles and the elders were there. Again, church singular, elders plural. And we see the same thing in Titus 1, 5, when Paul tells Titus to appoint elders in every city. In, in these cities were small, the churches were young, and there was uh, more often than not probably only one local church in these cities, but there were multiple elders. But we also see that the elders in the church were referred to as a council of elders. Um, this word appears three times in the New Testament. This is this one Greek word that is translated council of elders, press Presbyterian, sounds familiar, right, um, is, is the Greek word. And we just read it here in this passage in 1 Timothy 4, where Paul says to Timothy, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by the prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. There was a, a group of elders who came together and they um, ordained, is the idea here, Timothy to serve as an elder. Uh, the word's used twice by Luke, but it's used, it's used as a council of elders and it refers to the council of elders of the Jews. Um, you see it here um, in Luke twenty-two sixty-six. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. They were, they were, these were the leaders of the Jews. It was a group of elders, a group of men who, who were leading, who were making decisions. Paul refers to them in Acts 22.5 um, in his testimony. He says, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. So elders were important leaders of the people of Israel, Throughout their history, you go back through the Bible, you 
just do a search on the word elders, and you're going to see it comes up many, many times in the Old Testament as well as the New. But elders were important leaders throughout Israel's history. And, and you can go all the way back to Moses, right? When Moses comes and, and there, are, there are elders that are there. Um, it continues in the days of Joshua, even the days of the kings, even into the post-exilic times. There are elders. There are these, 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 a group of men who are leading. And when we come to the New Testament, we see that this council of elders is operating in Judaism. They're in the first century. So the Christian community, the church, um, as we even mentioned last week, adopted this form of leadership. Obviously, this was the Lord's will for the church as he revealed it through the apostles who practiced and taught leadership by a plurality of elders. And, and so the question is, well, who, who are these elders that make up the council of elders? Well, they're, they're qualified men. They're qualified elders. They're individual qualified elders. And, and we'll, we'll go through this quickly because we're, we're going to be returning to it and looking, looking at these things in more detail but first of all, elders, they, they had to meet specific moral and spiritual qualifications. That's why Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3. The saying is trust, trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer, which we saw last week is a synonym of elder, um, must be above reproach. And then he gives this, this list. Of course, he does the same thing in Titus. They had to meet specific moral and spiritual qualifications. Also, elders must be public, publicly examined by the church to ensure that they meet those obligations, those qualifications. And again, we see this in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 10. He says, and, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Okay, so, so here in 1 Timothy 3.10, this is the qualifications for the deacons. And, and what he says is, he says they have to prove themselves. This is for deacons. But we really see the same thing uh, regarding elders. In 1 Timothy 5.22, Paul warns Timothy, he says, he says, don't be hasty. Don't be quick in laying on of hands. He's, he's referring here to the laying on of hands and the ordination and the recognition and the installing of elders. And it was true for, for both deacons and elders that, that the church, the congregation, was that the, they were the ones who said, yes, we believe God's hand is upon this person. We believe God's hand is upon this man to be in a leadership position, that of elder and deacon, which we'll see in the future as well. Um, and, and those elders had to be publicly installed into the office. Again, the First Timothy five twenty two that we just read, and, but back in Acts fourteen twenty three, it says, "And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed." And there are other verses that that point to this as well. But 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 this is something that, and you know, we have this. We we understand elders are ordained. They're they're in, installed, they're they're put into to office, um, and any any pastor, uh, well, let me say this: most pastors have gone through this process. They have been examined. They have been examined by the congregation. They have gone through an ordination process. They have, and then they have been um, recognized, hands laid upon them, um, and they have been in, installed into the office of elder of pastor in acts 20 28 paul says pay careful attention to yourselves he's speaking to the elders and to all the flock in which the holy spirit has made you overseers and again this is this is a, a an important point elders are directed and empowered by the holy spirit to do his work um, again we'll talk more about this in, in the future but but it's not just anybody just steps up and says, yeah, I'll be an elder. It's a good thing to, to desire to be an elder. But 
um, you know, that person should should sense that this is what the the Lord wants him to do through the uh, um, direction and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We also see that elders must be acknowledged and honored by the congregation. Um, in, in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out of out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. We, we also see that um, in Hebrews 13, 17, where it says, obey those who are in authority over you. Um, the congregation um, will acknowledge and, and, and honor the elders as, as, you know, as a whole, as a, as a general principle. Well, let's just look at a, a, a brief definition of the elder structure of church government. And this is from um, Strzok's book. He says, The elder structure of government is a collective form of leadership in which each elder shares equally the position, authority, and responsibility of the office. And, and I've, I've used the, the terminology plurality of elders. Um, there are many different terms that could be used for elder leadership in a local church. It's been called it's been called collective or corporate or collegiate, multiple um, church leadership, plurality, shared leadership, team leadership. But the opposite of collective leadership of of a plurality of elders is is unitary leadership. It's it's one man leadership. Where, where one man is in complete charge of the church. I don't know how many of you know who Jack Hiles is, um, but he was a pastor of a big church in Hammond, Indiana, and he once was quoted as saying, I'm not the dictator, I'm the only tater. Yeah. Um, I can remember we were visiting family members in the Midwest. Um, I, I, I'm sure I've referred to this at some time in the past. We were having a cookout at their house. And, and all of a sudden, all of the, the women that were there said, oh, no. And they ran into the house. And I'm like, what's going on? <laughs> you know, the pastor's coming. It's the pastor's car. I see it coming down the highway. And, and what was the problem? They were wearing pants. And the, pastors, the pastor had taught for women to wear pants as a sin. And, and they didn't believe him. But they, they did it because bleh, he said so. The pastor said so. And, and you know, it, it, was, it was crazy. I mean, it really, like, shocked me. You remember you know, even when I first came here as the pastor, um, some oh, in that first year, people came up and, and questioned me on things. Um, somebody said, asked me, and, and again, I, I'm not, you know, in any way disparaging these people for their questions. They were honest questions, okay? And, and it comes from, from their background, where, where they had been and who the, what kind of church they had been in. And, and, and such, and, and someone came up and asked me, Pastor, is it all right for women to wear pants to church? And I'm like, you're asking me, you know? Uh, someone came up and said, uh, you know, I really think you should give us a list of movies that we can watch. I'm like, me? You want my list of movies? All five of them? Um, somebody came up and said, hey, did you, did you realize that so-and-so's daughter, who's in high school or college, maybe, I don't remember, posted this on Facebook? And I said, really? Am I the sheriff? Am I going to monitor everybody's Facebook account and decide what's good and what's bad? I mean, I was really quite surprised by these questions. I didn't realize I had such authority. In fact, I knew I didn't. I knew I didn't have such authority. 
But again, these questions came from sincere Christians who had been exposed to this kind of one man, single man leadership. What he says goes. He's the Baptist Pope of this church. No. Does anybody really want one man to run the church? Does anybody really want one person in authority who tells everyone else what their personal choices should be? I wouldn't want to be under that kind of church leadership. And I surely have never and would never want to be that kind of church leader. Well, what we see in the scripture is this consistent pattern of a plurality of elders in the early church. We alluded to this last week. But but this is, I just bring this up again for this point. It's interesting that there are, are several doctrines and practices that we have in the church which, which we have very little biblical instruction about. How much instruction do we have about the Lord's Supper? Two passages? I mean, if you count all of the accounts in, in, in the Gospels, the parallel accounts, as one. And then we have Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians 11, right? We have two passages. It's one of, it's one of the ordinances of our church, right? How much information do we have about baptism? Not that much, right? We don't have that much instruction about baptism. Um, and, and also, you know, even spiritual gifts. I mean, that's, why is that so controversial even today, especially since the Pentecostals brought it back, you know, into practice 130, 140 years ago. But it's because there's really, I mean, Paul gives us some instruction in First Corinthians, right? But we really don't have that much instruction about it. Um, but when we come to this matter of elders, we have a lot of instruction. We have, we have a lot more instruction about elders than we do about any of those, those topics I just mentioned, and, and others as well. How about the Trinity? How much instruction do we have there? And, and so, you know, we, we need to understand this, this doctrine. Um, and I just want to make two points here, really. The practice of a plurality of elders is recorded as the norm in the book of Acts. We've looked at some of these passages already. Now, now we understand that not everything that's recorded in the book of Acts is is considered, it should be normative for the church. Just because they did it in, in the early church doesn't necessarily mean that we should be doing it because we understand there were some transitional things going on there. There were some transitional gifts. There was transitional things going on when they when the apostles and the in the prophets were laying the foundation Ephesians 2:20 that we looked at last week um so not everything that that the, that they did in the early church was normative that's that's where i believe you know the pentecostals and the charismatics go they go off the deep end because they get a lot of their doctrinal um beliefs and practice from the book of acts but what we see here is that the instruction regarding elders is continued and given in the epistles. So Paul in multiple places, James, Peter, the, the author of Hebrews, they all give instruction on eldership and they, they show that even though it was something practiced in the early church, it was also something that was continued and it was it was taught to be continued as the church went forward. And also you, you note this both in the book of Acts and in, in the epistles that it wasn't only in the Jewish churches because they would have got the idea from, from the Jews, right? Because they, they had elders. But it was also in the Gentile churches. So there's instruction both for the elders themselves 
And there's also instruction for the churches in their relationship to the elders. You know, when Paul tells Tim, Titus to appoint elders in every city on the island of Crete, he was, he was going against the, the cultural, normal cultural practice of his day. Um, in, in the Jewish synagogue, there was generally a ruler of the synagogue. Because we're talking about local churches here, right? Uh, remember, Jairus was the ruler of a synagogue. And, and you go to these cities where there were synagogues, and there was generally a ruler of the synagogue. Um, and, and even the, um, in the Greco-Roman society, um, they often practiced you know, one-man leadership in their organizations. And, and the establishment of elder leadership in the local church was something, it, it was intentional. Paul says, this is how you do it. This is how you do it, Timothy. This is what you need to do, Titus. Even though it went against cultural norms, it was intentional. So this teaching about elders and a plurality of elders is really a, a directive that's meant to be followed by the church today. Now, what, what's the benefit of a council of elders? And, and this really is, is more of a practical thing. But, but really, one of the great benefits of a council of elders is balancing leaders' weaknesses. Um, we're all imperfect people. We all have blind spots or fatal flaws, a term that C.S. Lewis uses. And, and these blind spots, they distort our judgment. They, they even can deceive us. They can destroy us. Let me just read a portion of what C.S. Lewis writes here about fatal flaws. And looking back, how all the plans on that fatal flaw of his, he's being someone else's, incurable or laziness or touching or muddle or chain ellipsis. This is the next great step in wisdom to realize that you also are just that sort of person. You also have a fatal flaw in your character. All the hopes and plans of others have again and again shipwrecked on your character, just as your hopes and plans have shipwrecked on theirs. It is no good passing this over with some vague general admission, such as, of course, I know I have, I have my faults. It's important to realize that there is some really fatal flaw in you. Something which gives the others just that same feeling of despair which their flaws give you. And it is almost certainly something you don't know about. Like what the advertisements call halitosis, which everyone notices except the person who has it. But why, you ask, don't the others tell me? Believe me, they have tried to tell you over and over again. And you just couldn't take it. Perhaps a good deal of what you call their nagging or bad temper or queerness are just their attempts to make you see the truth. And even the faults you do know, you don't know fully. All right, let's pray and go home. Uh, wow. I mean, we all need to get to that point where we, we understand that, right? We all have fatal flaws. Think about Peter. Peter, he seems to have had a fatal flaw, right? Maybe the fear of man. Maybe we could label it that way. I mean, you, you know Peter's life. You know what he's hiding out, denying that he knows Christ. 
And then, then when he's pressured by the Jewish Christians, in Galatians, Paul writes about it, right? And, and he abandons the Gentile Christians and won't eat with them. Perhaps this fatal flaw was the fear of man. Did Paul have a fatal flaw? Well, I'm sure he did. I, you know, maybe, maybe it was being a little too harsh on his co-workers. I don't know. I'm just saying. Um, I'm not accusing Paul of that, but, you know, you read some of the accounts there, and, you know, maybe. I'm not, again, drawing a definite conclusion there, but, but here, here's the deal. With a plurality of elders, a man's weaknesses can be countered by other men's strengths. And over the course of time, his weaknesses can be tempered with the help of his colleagues. And this is one of the great values of a plurality of elders. They balance one another out in their weaknesses. Another advantage is distributing the workload. Distributing the workload. Because overseeing and pastoring involves many Diverse responsibilities. And an individual leader, no matter how gifted and talented he may be, is limited in what he can, can do. He's limited by his own gifts, but also by time and energy that it takes to do the work of an elder. A plurality of elders distributes the workload of those who are leading the church as they serve according to their gifts and abilities and time. And it also provides accountability. Provides accountability. And unfortunately, we, we all know that far too often pastoral authority has been abused. Um, if you haven't seen it, count yourself blessed. And shared leadership provides accountability. You know, you, you think about it. Um, Apparently, within the first couple of decades of the church, apparently there were already some problems in this matter of, of uh, elders abusing their authority. Because remember what Peter says here in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3. Let's just read this again. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And Peter seems to be addressing here some, some problems that some elders were having. You know, some, maybe some attitudinal problems. He says, don't, don't serve as elders under compulsion. Don't, don't do it merely as an obligation. But rather, um, do it out of desire. Um, do it willingly. Do it because you love Christ, because you love people. Do it, he says, as God would have you. There were motivation issues where apparently some of these elders were doing it for shameful gain. They, they were doing it out of a desire for, for dishonest gain, which Paul says, no, you know, that's, not, that's wrong. You do it with an eagerness, an eagerness to be an overseer and to be a, a pastor for, for the glory of God and for the good of others. But note also this last one here, he says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Um, in other words, you're not God. You're an elder who's overseeing and shepherding. You're not God. You're, you're, not, you're not playing God to others. You're not domineering over them and forcing your will on them. No, you... you you teach, you preach, you encourage, you exhort, you comfort, you do, do all the things that a, an overseer and a pastor does, but you also give them an example to follow. 
You know, I've heard many horror stories of dictatorial pastors wreaking havoc in a church. And I've also heard horror stories of how a board of deacons has pitted themselves against a single pastor. The pastor of their church. And they've caused division and strife. You see, those in leadership must hold one another accountable but, but not in an adversarial way. A plurality of elders who are working together on an equal basis to scripturally oversee and shepherd a local church can and should serve as a check and balance on each other in order to guard against any kind of wrongful or, or hurtful leadership. So there are, there are great advantages, great benefits to Um, church leadership by a plurality of elders and the last thing i'll point out this morning is is the principle of of first among equals Uh, the romans though they they had a lot of single leadership in their in their different organizations they also recognize this principle in their society they call it primus inter pares which i don't know how to speak latin but it means it means first among equals and, and we see this being practiced in, in the New Testament. Um, let me quote again Strzok here. He says, he says, although elders act jointly as a council and share equal authority and responsibility for the leadership of the church, all are not equal in their giftedness, biblical knowledge, leadership ability, experience, or dedication. Think about Jesus, right? Here, here's Jesus. And, and obviously we know who he is. But he's on earth, and, and he's, he's come to do what he's come to do, right? To, to be the ransom for our sin and, and, and to really to establish the church. And he chooses 12 men. And he, he, he chose 12 to be with him. And, and so he's training these 12. He's working with these 12. They're traveling with him, and, and he's sending them out. And, and you know the Gospels. You know what's going on here. And yet there were certain key times in, in Jesus' ministry where he chose out from those 12, how many? Three, right? And it's always the same three. It's Peter and James and John. They were the ones chosen to go to the Transfiguration. He took them into the room when he healed Jairus' daughter. Just those three. They were the three he separated from the others in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was praying. There was this inner circle of three within the twelve. But even in that inner circle, right, there's one. There's one who is... Who is um, separated from those three and of course that's peter undeniably peter um, is the first among his equals you read through the the gospels and you see in in the early chapters of acts and peter is speaking on behalf of all of the apostles he regularly spoke on their behalf every time the all four times the 12 apostles are listed who's the first one on the list Peter, every time. Peter is the first one on the list. And then specifically, Matthew, in, in, in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 2, when he gives his list of the apostles, listen to what he says. He says, the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter. And then he, he goes on down the list. Um, and 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 what he means here is, is, is he said Peter is first and foremost. Matthew doesn't mean Peter was called first by Jesus. He wasn't. In fact, you read John's gospel, and John says that Peter called Andrew, and Andrew went and got his brother, Peter. Jesus called Andrew. So, so Matthew doesn't mean that Peter is first one called by Jesus. He, he means Peter is first and foremost. So these 12 apostles, they, they jointly shared the leadership in the, in the early church, 
But Peter is the chief spokesman. He presented as a leader in the Gospels and throughout the first 12 chapters of Acts. And even though Peter was the undisputed leader of the apostles, the first among equals, we read nothing of him being given an official rank above others. They were not, the other, the other apostles weren't his subordinates. They weren't his assistants. Peter was the first among equals, and he was chosen to be so by the Lord himself. It also appears that when Paul and Barnabas worked together, although they were equals in the work, and you think about it, Barnabas was a believer before Paul was a believer. Barnabas actually welcomed Paul to join him in ministry. He introduced Paul to the apostles in Jerusalem. And yet, it's obvious that Paul was the leader. He was the chief speaker, we're told, in Acts 14. He was the more gifted of the two apostles. But again, he was ranked above Barnabas. When Paul writes to Timothy, he he says the following. And I read these verses earlier. 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. There there are qualifications for elders. And all elders must have the ability to teach the scriptures. And, And we'll talk more about what that means in the future, Lord willing. But Paul says here to Timothy that certain elders will rule well and labor in preaching and teaching. Um, Those of you who have done any preaching and teaching, especially if you're open in the scriptures and studying it for yourself and not using a printed curriculum that you're just following, you know, which is enough work in itself. Those of you who have labored at preaching and teaching know that that work takes a lot of time. It's time-consuming. It really is. Uh, You've probably heard of the term teaching elder. Some churches use that term, and and it's a good term. It's it's taken right from this text in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. In the local church, there's going to be one or more elders who devotes himself to the labor of teaching and preaching. And Paul says that those elders are worthy of double honor. And we'll look at this passage later on in, in more detail. But um, the idea here is without question, um, and again, we'll, I'll, I'll show you this from Scripture later. We don't have time today. But those elders who are ruling well and laboring and preaching and teaching the word, they merit not only the respect and honor that all elders deserve, but they should also be remunerated financially for their work. That's what Paul is communicating here. So so once again, what we see is from the early years of the church, not only was there a plurality of elders, but there were elders who were first among equals. There were those who were gifted specifically in the area of teaching and preaching the word of God. They weren't superior to, nor in authority over the other elders. They were equal to, yet they were first among equals. All of the elders were involved in leading the church. They were all involved in overseeing and pastoring, but not all of them were devo- not all of them were devoting the, the bulk of their time and energy to doing the work of an elder. Uh, some churches who have a plurality of elders call these elders who, who aren't devoting the bulk of their time to, to being an elder, they, they call them lay elders Um, and and they call them lay elders as opposed to official clergy the the problem is we we don't find these terms in the new testament we don't find these terms Um, we don't read anything about lay elders and we surely don't read anything about clergy An elder is an elder. There are no inferior or superior elders. 
and every elder must meet the qualifications of an elder, regardless of if he is an elder who is being financially remunerated for his work or an elder who serves but makes his living in a different way. The differences between elders are functional, not formal. So the first among equals is not superior or ruling over the other elders. He's one man on the council of elders who uses his gifts, which generally include the gift of teaching the scriptures, and he does so alongside the other elders as they together oversee and pastor the local church. So so what we see is that a plurality of elders is taught in the scriptures, and, and it's profitable for the church, especially in these areas of balancing one another's weaknesses, distributing the workload, and providing accountability. But it's also a huge advantage to an elder when dealing with problems in the church. Um, if you've been in a church for more than six months, you know there are problems in a church, right? There's no perfect church, and things things come up and things have to be dealt with and and they have to be dealt with in the right way and when there's an individual or a family in the church that's behaving in a way that's unscriptural and detrimental to their own spiritual health as well as the spiritual well-being of the local church the body of christ it's far better to have multiple elders dealing with these problems as i mentioned to you already Over the last several years, I have in many ways um, been using our deacons as fellow elders. And this is one of the areas that has been a tremendous help to me. When we face problems in the church, I haven't tried to tackle them by myself. Um, No, we, we get together and we pray together, we discuss the situations together, and we make decisions together in how to how to deal with the problems. And I thank God for our, our two deacons who, who've been willing to bear these burdens with me. And, and I know it was a tremendous burden on them. And if you asked them, they'd say, yeah, it was a burden. Was it a burden? These burdens? Remember these burdens? Yeah. It was on all three of us. But, but that's part of being an elder. And, and the end result was that I didn't have to bear the burden alone but neither did they. And in the end, in those cases that we, we had to confront people about their sin, we were 100% united in what we believed that we should do, and we communicated our unanimity to those people that we were dealing with. Therefore, those that we were dealing with, they, they, they could not come back and, and point to any one of us individually and make accusations and say, it's the pastor's fault. It's, it's that deacon's fault. No, if they were going to make an accusation, it would have to be made against all of us in leadership. You, you don't know what a tremendous help that is. You may know. But it's a tremendous help in leading a church. And I wholeheartedly believe that God's plan for the church is to have a council of elders, a plurality of elders who can do the work of the ministry together. But, but here's the deal. Finding good leadership isn't easy. Jackie read 1 Samuel 8 for us earlier. You may have thought it was a strange scripture passage reading. No, my wife gave me a funny look. <laughs> there was purpose in it. God's people, Israel, rejected God as their king, right? That's what the scripture says. And demanded of Samuel that he give them a king to rule over them. And God told Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as their king. And they will suffer for it. But I'll give them what they want. And suffer they did, right? Saul, the first king, was proud and arrogant, self-centered, self-deceived, and it was a total disaster. And God rejected him. And over the centuries, Israel and Judah had many kings. Some of them were extremely wicked, and some of them were, well, we could say pretty good. A few. But by far, 
Who was their best king? Who? No, of human kings. David, right? It was David. The man after God's own heart. And yet, what happened to David after years of being king? In the power, the absolute monarchy, the, the power went to his head, right? And what did he do? He took another man's wife, he committed adultery with her, and he murdered her husband. Wow. That was Israel's best king. That was Israel's best king. Last week we briefly noted that Jesus is called the overseer and shepherd of our souls. 1 Peter 2.25 For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And Jesus is our overseer and our shepherd, but he's also our king. Right? He's also our king. And of course we see this um, clearly prophesied in the Old Testament, but also many times in the New Testament. But just one verse in Revelation 19.16 On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is the Holy One of God. He is the righteous King. And as we think about church leadership and these three titles of of elder, overseer, and shepherd, we have to think of Jesus. An elder is a man who is mature and worthy of respect and honor. He's a man of stature and strong character. Jesus is not called an elder, but he is the holy, righteous, perfect king who is overseer and shepherd, as well as the perfect example of an elder. King Jesus, the overseer and shepherd of our souls, is perfectly glorious. He rules in righteousness. He shepherds in loving kindness. And that can be said of no one else in history. No one else is perfectly glorious and and perfectly rules in righteousness and shepherds in loving kindness without fault. That can't be said of anyone. Present, past, or future. Not King David. Not the Apostle Paul. Not Charles Spurgeon. Not the very best pastor who's ever pastored in anywhere at any time has been perfect. Only Jesus. The one who died for us that we might live. The one who shepherds us. The one who oversees us. Always dealing with us in his grace. In his mercy. In his kindness. In his compassion. In his love. And he does so like the ultimate elder. Even as the king of kings, the one who is alone worthy, not only to receive respect and honor, as an elder does, but as the heavenly host proclaim, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So the scriptures present to us Jesus as king, as overseer, as shepherd, And he is our Lord. He is our master. And as Christians, we must acknowledge his lordship. If you have believed on Jesus Christ as your savior, if you have turned from your sin and trusted Jesus to save you from your sin because he died on the cross for your sins and paid the penalty for your sins, if you have trusted him, he's not only your savior, he is your Lord. He is your Lord, and we must bow to him, worship him, submit to him, love him, follow him. Now, as a Christian, does that describe your daily life? Is that how you live? Do you get up in the morning and say, Jesus is Lord? Jesus is my Lord. 
He's my Lord. You know, if you recognize Jesus as Lord, and you understand who he is, that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, that he is the one who who shepherds and oversees your soul, then responding to, to him as Lord will be what you want to do. It will be your desire. It will be a calming effect on your life. When you recognize that he alone, the sovereign Lord of the universe, is the one who is ruling, the one, the one who is overseeing your very life. He is shepherding you. And whatever comes your way, you can look to him and say, yes, Lord. Many times I have had to say about myself, my family, and, and, and many who have been in the church, Lord, I don't understand. I don't know what you're doing, Lord. And, and, the, and the bottom line always is, I'm glad you do. And I can trust you. That, that's who our Lord is. He loves us and he's shepherding us with that loving kindness He's overseeing us. He's overseeing even our circumstances that we, we may struggle with. And, and we can trust him. And, and here, we, I meant to finish up earlier, but I'm not doing so well. I'm almost done now. Here, here's what I want to bring it down to. Elders are to oversee and shepherd the local church like Jesus does. No wonder it takes the plurality of elders to lead a local church, right? What individual man is equipped to oversee and shepherd a church by himself? I too believe that a plurality of elders is, is taught in the New Testament in, in the best possible form of, of local church leadership. Because if it's carried out properly, the elders of the local church, they, they can, by the grace of God, they can balance one another. They can encourage one another. They can hold one another accountable. They can help one another by using their various gifts and talents to effectively oversee and shepherd the local church. But no man can do that single-handed effectively. And we need men in this church. We need men in this church who are willing to step up and say, by the grace of God... I will make the sacrifices necessary and devote myself to being an elder in this church. But there's more to being an elder than, than simply having a desire and volunteering to be an elder. There are qualifications to be met. There is training to receive. There's experience to be gained. There's the recognition of the congregation of the new elder. And we have much to study in this series on biblical church leadership. But I'll just ask you, will you join me in prayer that God will raise up godly men in our church and bring in other godly men who have the desire to be elders and who are willing to make the necessary sacrifices to become qualified and trained spiritual leaders so that they can share in the leadership of a council of elders in this local church. I hope you will join me in prayer. I, I told you these messages we're looking at in recent weeks and, and in this series, they're for our church now, but, but I believe they're laying a good foundation for the future. For those who come after us. I, I was praying with two men this morning. One of them prayed, prayed that God would bring in those who are going to be the future of our church. That's a good prayer. That's a good prayer. And, and, and I'd ask you to pray that one too. But uh, let's pray about this eldership thing and, and that God would give us guidance and raise up the men that he wants to serve here. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the teaching. But thank you that you are our king, our Lord. 
You are our overseer, our shepherd. Thank you that we can trust you to shepherd us in loving kindness, with all wisdom, and do so by your sovereign hand. Lord, help us, even as we study this this teaching about eldership, Lord, to, to recognize ultimately that you, O Christ, are the head of the church and that we have complete confidence in you. You said you will build your church. And Lord, part of building your church is raising up godly leadership. And we pray that you would do that, that you would work in men's hearts, not just to give them a desire to be elders, Lord, but they would be willing to to honestly look at their own lives and make the necessary changes to be qualified to be elders. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.